0: Um, Mark chapter 6, uh, we're going to be just continuing on as we're like following Jesus in, his, um, in his, his ministry. We've seen the most incredible things over the last few weeks. So we've seen Jesus um, crossing the Sea of Galilee and he calms a storm. Like miraculously, it's stormy. They're afraid they're going to die. And Jesus just speaks and the storm calms. He takes him to the other side. He casts up to 2,000 demons out of a person that's just been demonized. He comes back um, across the Sea of Galilee and he's back. Capernaum. And we see Jesus, like there's first this man, Jairus, that's like his daughter is dying and he asked Jesus to come and and heal her. Then there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus heals her. Jesus goes back. By that point, the little girl has died. He raises her from the dead. So we're just seeing Jesus do all kinds of incredible things. Like the, the, the power of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the authority of Jesus in all these different contexts, we're seeing um, over and over again. And as we get now to Mark chapter 6, we're going to go, um, the first 13 verses, we're going to see Jesus come back to his hometown, which is exciting. Like he gets to go back to Nazareth, and it's where he grew up. And so everyone gets to see, um, you know, their, their little Jesus that they knew when he was just a little kid coming back. And they've heard all these stories about him, and they're going to see what it is all about. It's really kind of an interesting Situation. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to take um, two different stories. We're going, to, we're going to go all the way to verse 13 in Mark chapter 6. We're going to take two stories and we're going to set them next to each other to kind of compare what's happening. All of them about, uh, both of these stories about faith. And we're going to see how they kind of tie together and what we can learn about Jesus by seeing these two things side by side. So let's jump in. Verse 1. Um, Mark tells it the story like this. Uh, He, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So here's Jesus, back in Nazareth, preaching at the local synagogue, the local church, basically. And so he's, he's up there, he's sharing, and it's just this really beautiful um, picture. Like, they've, they've heard all these things that Jesus has done, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons. All of these things they've seen and heard about Jesus doing. And now he's there, and he's preaching and it must have been a great sermon because they're just like blown away. So they're, the questions they're asking, they're like, where did he learn all of this stuff? Um, how did this man get so wise? You know, they're just like marveling at it. And they've, they've obviously heard what he's done because they're saying, "How like how is he doing all of this powerful stuff? So beautiful picture of him coming back home. And all of these episodes, all these things you hear about Jesus doing, this is the stuff that faith is built on, right? It's like, each of these things, man, you see, like, do do you want to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Man, I would love to just see him heal somebody right in front of me. I'd love to, I'd love to know that someone rose from the dead. So all these things are the things that you would build your faith on. But it's more complicated than that. Always in the Gospel of Mark, it's more complicated than that because Jesus will do the big things. He'll do the powerful things. People will see it, but their responses are so varied. Here, we get a response that has a lot, more, a lot more tension in it than simply, yes, Jesus is one of our own. How amazing, we're going to follow him. It's actually more complicated. So let's jump into verse 3. Here's how they begin to respond. So they, they've said, what's this wisdom? What are these mighty works? And then they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and joses and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So, it started great, right? They see, they acknowledge the powerful things Jesus had done, and then they kind of drift into, but hang on though, like we know this guy, you know? Like this is little Jesus from down the street. We we know who he is, and there's this tension that they're feeling of like, on the one hand, we're seeing and hearing all this stuff, but on the other hand, it's just Jesus, you know? Like they know him, and the familiarity in this sense does not help them out. They're saying, this is the carpenter. The, the word there is tecton. It means like Carpenter working with wood, but it's broader than that. It could mean like a stonemason. Basically, he's like the local handyman, you know? So it's like, okay, on the one hand, he's, this guy's doing the works of God for sure, but they're like, I don't know, but isn't that the guy that redid your kitchen cabinets a couple of years back? You know, it's like, it's like, it's bizarre to say it that way, but it would be no less bizarre than seriously, whoever did your last kitchen remodel, you being like, you know, that guy is the son of God, actually, you know, and you'd be like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the, uh, the, the kitchen redoer guy was the son of God. Like, it kind of gives a note of like how normal Jesus' childhood must have been, you know? The fact that they're like, but how could Jesus have done this? Like, he's just one of the kids in the neighborhood. But here he is, and he's doing it, and they have this tension. They know his mother. They know, they know Mary. They know his, his brothers. So it seems like Mary and Joseph would have had other kids by this point, so they're listing his brothers and his sister. Joseph isn't mentioned in this, which leads a lot of people to say perhaps Joseph had died by this point, which seems likely, but we really don't know. But they're, they're just looking at this whole thing, and they're like, okay, well, he has human brothers and sisters. They assume we we know that Jesus was born from the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know that, and they're just like, okay. I mean, we assume he's fully human, like all the rest of them, and it's kind of the situation. I I had so when I um, left home, one of the things I went up to college, and, and probably I think it was my senior year of high school, um, I got chosen to like preach a sermon uh, for so like my Christian high school. We all were going to do something in the, in the service. And like some of the, my friends, I think, volunteered earlier. And they got to like pass the offering plate. Someone else led the music. And I got voluntold that I was going to be the one that preaches, okay? And I had and so the sweet, sweet old ladies, you know, just like, oh, that was so good. And I'm telling you for sure it was not very good, okay? Um, I've, I've worked on it some, and I've got more to go. But I've, it's a lot better what you guys are getting, even on my sick day. is way better than what they got then. Um, but they're like, you should be a pastor. And I was like, I will never be a pastor, you know? Um, and uh, I was like, I would just be too hypocritical, right? It didn't occur to me that maybe I could just not be a hypocrite and do it. But uh, but then then uh, then a couple of years into, um, into, into college, I just felt the Lord calling me towards ministry. And I just remember telling the Lord, I'm like, I feel like this is what you're calling me to, but I could never get up in front of people and talk on a regular basis, you know? So God's done all kinds of works there too, but I remember going back home. My home pastor brought me back home and they got to preach to the home church, a situation just like this. And there's all the sweet old church ladies that were like, they were the nursery people when I was a kid. And they loved to remind you that they used to change your diapers, you know. And uh, apparently I was just like a little, a little uh, passive child because they were like, we, we saw you, you know, kids would steal your toys. And we cheered the first time you stole a toy back from a kid. I'm like, man, how, um, how unexciting was I as a kid. So I preached and they gave me like the ultimate Southern insult, which is like, sounds like a compliment, but it's actually kind of an insult. They're like, oh, isn't that the sweetest thing? You know, Mark is back and preaching or whatever. I, they, they loved me certainly, but they they weren't ready to be like, man, let's get Mark to be our pastor. And certainly in this context here, certainly they wouldn't have been like, man, let's, let's have him be our savior. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's so um, incredible to think of what the situation was. It's, the son of God is God himself taking on flesh. He grew up and they just saw him as the kid down the street. And here he is doing the works of God and showing that he is God himself on earth. And these people are supposed to somehow be okay with that, right? To acknowledge like, wow, like he's doing these powerful things because he is actually God himself, right? He's doing these, uh, he teaches with authority because he carries the authority of God. That would be impossible, I think, for them to get their heads around. And, um, and so here they are now. I can imagine them being surprised by it, right? Like, okay, we're seeing, like, Jesus is doing these things. We we grew up with him, and yet here he is doing these things. I can see them being surprised, but it does seem intense that they're offended by him. So it says that at the end of verse 6, they were offended um, by Jesus. So why offended? It's actually not that different than the religious leaders. For the religious leaders, they've been opposing Jesus. They're offended by him because he's coming in, and they're they're basically saying, yeah, these things look like the works of God, but God doesn't work through someone like this, you know? They look at Jesus like, not through someone that hangs out with sinners, not through someone who's a little bit shady in his reputation because he's willing to be hanging out with tax collectors, he's willing to hang out with the sinners, he's willing to talk to people that are sinful people. Um, And so they're, they're saying God doesn't work through people that have these kinds of associations. For the home church crowd, they're sitting there and they're saying, like, okay, these look like the works of God, but God doesn't work through people this ordinary, you know? We know this kid. Like, God doesn't work through normal, ordinary people to this extent. And so there's this offense that comes when we see, like, how it is that God's working. We believe that God can work. We believe that God can do big picture things. But there's all these insults we have to take before we can actually accept Jesus for who he is. So there's a, an insult, I think, to our intelligence when we're asked to believe that like, okay, we're like, you know, God wouldn't work this way through an ordinary person like this. Um, it insults our allegiance. You know, we're like, I, I could never follow someone that I don't respect. And I grew up with this kid. Like, I, you know, I can't follow him in that sense. Um, it insults our social sensibilities. We look like idiots if we're following somebody um, that we know better. Like, how could this possibly be God himself? What, what I think is interesting about this is what they're offended by. What, what the offense comes down to is they're offended by the incarnation, okay? So the incarnation is a theological term that just means that God himself took on flesh and he lived among us. So the idea, God's plan, for me in the big picture sense, it makes all kinds of sense for God to be um, in the Old Testament where he's defeating armies single-handedly, or he's like parting the Red Sea, or he's sending the 10 plagues, like those kinds of ways in which God works. Big picture, powerful, amazing, that makes sense to me. It's easy to get a sense of God's power there. But the incarnation looks like God's saying, we're about to celebrate at Christmas time. He's saying, I'm gonna act decisively in the world. I'm gonna come into the world and I'm gonna fix everything. And the way I'm gonna do it is I'm gonna become a human being. I'm going, to be, I'm going to become that kid that grew up two houses down the street, right? I'm going to, like, it's wild to think. Somebody literally did change Jesus' diapers, you know? Like, it's, it's unbelievable, but it happened, right? It's God's plan to do it by becoming one of us, by living amongst us, by be, becoming indistinguishable from the rest of us. That's God's plan in the incarnation. And so everybody, I think, at this time was fine with God working. In fact, they were praying for God to work. But when it comes down to saying, okay, God, yes, we want you to work, but, like, as my neighbor, like, as my actual neighbor, you're going to become that? You're going to become this specific person? And so they're, they're offended. They're like, okay, we're being asked to believe something that's a little hard to believe, you know? It really stretches the imagination. Soren Kierkegaard talks about how there is a, a gate to Christianity. There's only, like, the, the, you can't enter fully into a relationship with Jesus without first entering through this gate. And that gate, he says, is offense. You've got to get close enough to Jesus. You've got to see him clearly enough that you're offended by him. And only when you can be offended by him and then decide, I want to step forward anyways and follow him, only then are you actually a follower of Jesus. His A big thing in his day was there was the state church and um, everyone was a Christian just because they lived in Denmark at the time. I feel like that mirrors my upbringing where I grew up in a little country church and I was Christian because I was Christian, you know? It's just like you're raised in that whole thing. There's a lot about America where we used to live that way at least. But Kierkegaard says, no, you've got to find this place where you see him clearly enough and what he's asking you to believe about yourself and about him, that you could be angry about that, that you could be offended and say, okay, how, yeah, how God is saying to me that I am not good enough and that every good thing I've done in my life amounts to nothing before God. I have to repent and start over. Like, that's an offensive thing to be told, but that's exactly what we see with Jesus. For this home crowd, it's like, you've gotta be at a point where you're willing to say, okay, yeah, that kid I taught in Sunday school is God himself speaking to me. Like, those are hard things to say, but until we're willing to get close enough to see, really, I think we have to see Jesus Either as the religious leaders said, we're like, man, this guy is challenging all the wrong things and he's calling us to things that no one's ever called us to before. They actually saw something pretty clear about who Jesus was in this sense. And they had to enter in beyond that offense and say, okay, but I can't deny this is what God is doing in the world. And so I'm going to follow, even though it offends my sensibilities. Home crowd people, man, Jesus is familiar to me. And then I'll just say for a lot of us growing up in the church, there is this sense where we're so familiar with Jesus and Christianity and who he is. I think a lot of our younger generations that are kind of walking away from their faith, it's similar to this. They grow up, they're familiar with the stories of Jesus, they're familiar with the theology, um, and it comes to a point where they have to decide, does this mean anything to me or or not? Am I just going with what I've known? So you've got to be offended, you've got to be surprised, you've got to see what Jesus is actually doing, what he's calling you to, and, and once we're offended by Jesus, and see that he's calling us to repent, calling us to let go of ourselves, calling us to follow him, and he is kind of a crazy character in the Gospels. If we're willing to follow a crazy person like this, then we're entering into something that is calculated, and it's our own choice, and we are taking the, the responsibility and the ownership of following him. Okay, so home crowd. This is story number one. Home crowd, Jesus preaches, and um, and they're like, okay, man, you're, you're speaking like God would speak. You're doing the works that God would do, but um, we're having a hard time because we know you too well. So um, there's this um, reality in this where their, their response is, okay, um, like they, they're, they're, they're choosing to be offended and they're not gonna follow him. Watch what this does to the works that God is doing in the world now. So this is in verse four. Watch, it, watch what Jesus has to do based on their response. So verse four, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So Jesus' response here is um, their lack of belief, their offense at him limits what Jesus himself is able to do in their town, which is a crazy thought. He looks at all the things that he would like to do The ways that he has been working in all these other places and he comes and because they're so familiar with him, because they're not willing to believe that he is who he says he is, um, his work actually gets stifled in that area. He's not able to do as much. It's a crazy thing to be able to say, to say like, okay, Jesus, God can't do something. But that's what the text actually says. He's he's limited in what he can do because of this whole thing. Jesus is saying a prophet is dishonored in his own hometown. He gets honored everywhere else, but when he goes home, he's dishonored dishonor, dismissiveness, that's like the opposite of faith. So we come off of chapter 5, where people come in this huge faith, and they're like, Jesus, we believe you can do something. Do it here. There's this faith that's strong, that's powerful. They believe Jesus can do it, and he does amazing things. Here, it's the opposite of faith. It's dishonor, it's dismissiveness. And so they're, they're not seeing Jesus for who he actually is. And because of that, there's works that, that you've got to believe Jesus could have, would have healed more people in that area, except that they were closed off to it. They didn't, it was like they didn't want to see Jesus healing, so they didn't see Jesus healing, right? They're not inviting him. They're not asking him. They're not wanting it. Um, they don't want Jesus to be who he actually is. And so in this whole thing, we're seeing their lack of faith has this impact on the actual um, ministry of Jesus, It's a a crazy thought to me. Now, we have to see for sure. This has nothing to do with Jesus' power. Jesus is powerful enough to heal. As a matter of fact, I love how casually uh, Mark throws it in there. Like, he couldn't do any mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. But like, you know, that's boring by this point for Jesus. So I love that he still is like, he's going to do what he's going to do. And he's going to heal who he's going to heal. And he's going to be active. And his power goes out and it does what he wants it to do. So certainly his power is there. But, but there's this sense of, like, experiencing the works of Jesus is tied with, like, are you going to acknowledge who he really is? Are you going to see this is what he came to do to show us that there is this life that we can have? There's this healing that we can have. There's even this eternal life that we can have as he raises a girl from the dead, that death is not the end. So he's inviting them to so much more. Absolutely, our faith, I think, is an is a element uh, in The healing that we experience, we're going to see. I believe that the implication here is we're going to see God doing bigger things. We're going to notice it more, and maybe He's going to respond to our faith when we say, "Okay, Lord, I believe it. Like, I like, I'm I'm sick. I want to be healed, Lord. I believe that You can do it. Would You please do it?" I think we're going to see more of God working in that context than when we're sitting here just living our lives and we're trying to just make everything work and we're trying to just toughen up. We're not going to see God work as often. I think that's kind of what it amounts to. Now. I want to be really clear. It's not a formulaic thing. So I think all throughout the Gospels we've been seeing, there's nothing formulaic about it. There's a lot of people that Jesus didn't heal. He just chose not to. He didn't go everywhere. He wasn't raising every dead person. He wasn't healing every sick person. He wasn't casting out every single demon. We see that he can do it, but there's no formula. There's no, there's no like, guarantee that if we just believe hard enough that it's going to happen. So we have to be really clear with that. But I think the invitation of the Gospel of Mark as a whole and I think the implication in a passage like this is saying, "Hey, we're going to see more if we want. If we want Jesus to work, and if we're asking Him and we're believing, we're going to see more of it than we would otherwise." So this is what Jesus is doing. There's no formula. There's no automation. But we still see He's still healing people, but they're they're kind of um, resisting Him to the point where He's not doing um, as much there. And I love that it says in verse six, "He marvelled because of their unbelief." So. All through the Gospels, we see people just amazed at Jesus, right? The crowds are looking. Jesus is healing people. He's restoring people to life. So All through the Gospels, people are just amazed. The response to what Jesus is doing is they are amazed. Now we see Jesus' response to them, and he's also amazed, right? He's just like, wow, like I never would have believed it, right? But what is he amazed at? He's amazed at their unbelief, right? He's sitting there, and he's doing all these incredible things, and he sees these people that are just not willing to consider that he is who he says he is, and he's like, I, I cannot get over how hard-hearted you are, how blind you are to what's happening right before you. So his amazement is um, at their unwillingness to acknowledge what it is that they're seeing. It's right in front of their eyes, but they're not willing to interpret it to see the whole thing. So I think Jesus is, uh, it would call us in this passage, I think Jesus would call us to open our eyes and to see what's right around us, right? So Part of it is from reading a story like this. Part of it is, uh, we, you know, we just felt, celebrated Thanksgiving. What well, we did in my uh, household, we we like talked about what are we thankful for? How has God been working in our lives? Let's talk about some of these things. And I'm an optimist, so I can always see the positive sides around us. But some of you guys focus on the negative things. We focus on the times that God didn't answer a prayer, right? God didn't come through. God didn't heal that relationship. He didn't heal our illness. He didn't save that person. Like, Those things are easy to focus on. But the other side of it is true. There's a lot to be thankful for. There's all these interventions that God does. And so to see those things, I think it's just saying, let's open our eyes. Let's recognize, okay, God is working all around us. Let's see the good that he's doing. Let's trust that we don't understand the whole big thing. But he's calling us to open our eyes. And so the question I think for us is, are we hindering what God would want to do in us, around us, through us, um, by having our eyes closed to these things? Because we don't believe that he can or that he wants to. All right, so let's close that chapter, that section. That's that one story. Um, Faith, belief, seeing that Jesus works, not letting our familiarity um, stop us. Let's be offended by Jesus, but let's push through and see who he is. Now we see this group of people that's unwilling to believe in Jesus, so he's not working. Now we're gonna see another group of people we're going to focus on the 12, and Jesus is going to send them out. And what they're going to be asked to see is, are they going to believe, not just that Jesus can work, but are they going to believe that Jesus can actually work through them? It's a much uh, deeper, tougher question to answer. But here we're going to see um, Jesus do that, starting in the second half of verse 6 here. He went about among the villages teaching, and he called the 12, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So Jesus now will send them out, and they're going to do his job for him, basically. I love that this, Jesus doesn't wait until he's done, right? He doesn't wait. He hasn't, he hasn't died for anyone's sins yet. He hasn't solved everything. He hasn't done, like there's still so much that Jesus himself will do. But even at this early stage, he comes and he just says, okay, hey, let's get together, guys. I'm gonna now send you out. And it's gonna be a matter of, you're beginning to believe that I can do these things. Do you believe that I can do these things through you? That's a crazy thought, uh, a crazy leveling up of our faith, I think, to believe that God can do it like this. I love that it happens at this early stage because it's a reminder that God's intention was never that he would just do it all for us. His intention was always that he would send his people out in so much of what God wants to do in the world, he wants to do through us, right? They had a hard time believing that this ordinary kid, Jesus, growing up could do these powerful things, and that was a roadblock to their faith. I think we have a hard time believing that us ordinary kids, right, that just grew up and we're just, you know, fumbling our way through lives, that God could actually do powerful things through us, but this story is here early on in the whole thing to remind us this is always how he wants to work. Um, Working through us is huge. From the moment that Jesus called the first disciples, he came to a couple of fishermen in Mark chapter 1, and he calls them, okay, stop fishing for fish. I'm now calling you to be fishers for people, right? That's in there at the very beginning. The first words they heard Jesus say, I'm, I'm, I have people that I want to gather in to be part of this like new community, this life that I'm bringing. And so I'm going to take you and instead of searching for fish, you're going to search for people and you're going to invite them to come in and be part of this whole thing. Um, in Mark chapter three, we saw Jesus say he's calling them, inviting some so that he might send them out. He has a job description for his people. So he sends them out, and the way he does this is he's, there's like a pattern of simplicity here with this whole thing. So they're, they're to take almost nothing with them. So don't take anything for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, uh, wear sandals, but don't put on two tunics. So it's like not even a change of clothes, no preparations. This is going to be a journey of simplicity. It's going to be a mission where you're just going to have to depend on me for everything. And I love, like, it's not about how well-prepared they are. It's not about how well-trained they are. They've got to see some of the things that Jesus does and he's saying, now you're going to go and you're going to do these things as well. Um, I think it's fascinating that he, uh, he sends them out and what is he going to send them to do? I, I, if I'm honest with you, I wish that what he said here was like, you're going to go out and you're going to hold some Bible studies with people. Um, You're going to do some evangelistic campaigns where you hand out tracts to people, and you're just going to pray for the people around you, you know? Like if Jesus sent them out in that setting, I'd be like, good, that is my view of church, and that's great, you know? But what Jesus does is he's been doing crazy things in the world, right? He's been proclaiming this gospel, this good news that he's here, and calling people to repent. Um, He's been uh, casting out demons. He's been healing sick people. What Jesus then turns to his disciples and sends them out to do is all of those same things, So when we look at what Jesus is doing in the world, the massive scale and the power of what he's been exhibiting, that's what he turns to his disciples and says, you guys do this. He gives them authority over all these unclean spirits and says, hey, there's nothing that's going to withstand you either, right? They've seen Jesus take on a a guy with a couple thousand demons in him, and he did it with power and authority, and he's like, hey, there's nobody that's too far gone for you. You're going to go out, and you're going to share this mission. He sends them out. And in doing so, he I, I love this too. He sends them in pairs, two by two, okay? Which I think is an indication. There, there's a, a side uh, that a lot of commentators point out there where in Deuteronomy, you establish the truth of a matter based on the testimony of two witnesses. So there's probably a side where he's like, go two by two so that you can be like, hey, this is my experience of Jesus. And then you can be like, hey, also, you know, same for me. I've seen Jesus do these things. So that's a cool conf- confirming thing. But the other side of it is I think, there's a reminder here that Jesus never intends for us to do this whole thing alone. So he's not doing it by himself. He's gonna send us out to do it, but he also doesn't send us out to do it by ourselves. That's the beauty of the church. Matter of fact, our mission statement as a church is that we are finding, we're glorifying God by finding life in Jesus together and inviting others to do the same. I think that word together is so um, uh, appropriate to what Jesus is doing here. Sending them out two by two. You're going to go, you're going to, You're going to exp- like you've experienced all this life in me, now you're going to go invite other people to experience that life with you as well. So there's an invitation to go out, do what Jesus has been doing, bring people in. Um, no one's going to be too far for you to help, but you're going to do it side by side. You're going to do it together. So what are they going to do and what are they not going to do? Last couple of verses here. In verse 10, he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with the oil many who were sick and healed them. So they go out and they're just going house to house, okay? And if they find a house that's like interested and willing to listen, they stay in that house until that whole thing has run its course. If they go somewhere and somebody's not interested, what I love about this is not pull out your apologetics textbook and make sure you convince them. What he says is if they, if they don't want to listen to it, that's fine. Just shake the dust off, move on to the next place. Um, because what you're there to do is to be a witness, to say like, hey, this is what Jesus has done for me. This is who he is. And so we go and we share that. But They're going out and they're looking for the people that are receptive, that are willing to listen, that are interested, that that see their need for Jesus. And when you find those people, that's where you invest your time. In, In the church, I think, you know, we read this and it's almost like Jesus did that with his disciples then. That's because they were his 12 disciples. But now he doesn't really want us to do that, right? What Jesus wants us to do now is like, let's gather together in church on Sunday mornings. Let's have a good time together. Let's make sure we can get the kids out of the room for a bit and we can just kind of enjoy being adults together. Um, And then let's like, you know, maybe pray for people, but then let's come back and do it next week, you know? Um, Francis Chan uses this analogy of, a, um, a football team that gathers, okay? The football team, and you get out on the field and you huddle, okay? So you're like, in the huddle, you're talking about what play are we gonna run? Okay, you're gonna go here, I'm gonna do this, and so we're gonna do this play, okay? Good, and then you ready break, you know? But then the football team goes from the huddle, breaks, and they go and sit on the bench for a minute. And then they come back out on the field and they huddle again, re- Call the play, ready, break, go sit on the bench again, come back out and huddle. All they're doing is just huddling and then going to the sidelines, huddling and then sidelines. And, of course, that's absurd, right? Because why do you call a play in a huddle? It's so that you can go run that play, right? Well, Francis says it this way to say... This is kind of like what we do as a church, you know? We gather together for a huddle, and we're like, man, the love of Jesus can reach anybody. Man, Jesus calls us to, to, like, show his grace and his love to the people around us. And so we're like, you guys, that's awesome. That's awesome. Let's go do that. And then we go home, and we just kind of sit on the sidelines, and then we gather together in the huddle again, and we talk about it again. Hey, let's go do it, guys. We can do it this time. Let's do it. And we go sit on the sidelines, and we come back. A huddling church, a church that only huddles and never runs plays, is not a church in the way that Jesus intends. And so I think what this comes down to is you see Jesus' home crowd, and they see Jesus, and they just it's just too much. You know, they're too familiar with him. It's like, okay, we can't, we can't get ourselves to believing that this is really like what God is like. This is really who Jesus is, who he says he is. They're having a hard time with that. I think for these disciples, they were given this invitation where they were going to get to see, okay, Do I believe that Jesus actually is who he says he is? Do I believe that he matters? Do I believe that he has an impact on my actual life and that his love extends to those people that are around me? Sometimes we're so scared about what people around us believe and what they're gonna say to us, what they're gonna like, they're gonna oppose us, they're gonna make fun of us, it's gonna be too awkward. Like, I don't know, like it's so, all these things are so hard for us to overcome and yet Jesus is sending them out with power and with authority and he's just saying, hey, there's real work that you can do in fighting against the darkness here. You can go and be a messenger. You don't have to be insecure about it. If someone doesn't want to listen, that's fine. They don't need to. It doesn't matter um, uh, in terms of like, it's not your job to save anybody. Um, In fact, I love that Jesus says this in the context of failure. He's just gone to his hometown of Nazareth and they weren't willing to listen to him, so he's not able to do much there. And it's in that setting, after he just failed miserably, that he's like, hey, now you guys go out and do the same thing. It's a reminder that we're not saving everybody. It's God's plan. It's Jesus' plan. I hope you guys know I don't think Jesus actually failed, okay? I feel like i um I feel like I misspoke there. Jesus didn't fail, but they didn't respond to him there, and he sends us out into it. So go. What has Jesus done for you? Go and tell that to the people around you. i I think that we've been um, taught in Christian circles that, Everybody in the world around us is just super antagonistic to Jesus, right? So the moment we mention Jesus, it's like, okay, you're like we're going to get persecuted, people hate us, people are going to be angry and belligerent. I I just feel like I want to say I that hasn't been my experience. Maybe it has been yours and I think there's probably parts of the world, parts of the country maybe where that's the case more. But what I think is this, what I've experienced is people are hesitant about us coming in and we take like a full package of all the rules of Christianity, all the doctrines formulated in in very precise, specific ways, um, all the expectations of the whole thing, and we set that down in front of people, and we're like, hey, you either take all this right now, this second, or you go to hell, okay? And that's kind of like, I think that's what we've done a lot, is we just set this whole thing down, you're like, are you going to be in on all of it, every detail, everything? Um, Are you going to agree with me on everything, including all your morality and all of your beliefs and everything? Um, or are you walking away from this? I, what I feel like people are receptive to is, is less that, right? It's hard to shift your entire worldview and every thought and every every allegiance and every bit of morality. It's hard to shift all of that at once. But certainly, we know God does that from time to time, right? What I think is um, a lot more compelling, what I, what I see people being compelled by is they're still compelled by Jesus. Jesus is still a fascinating human being and God himself too, right? He's a fascinating person and There's so much in the way that Jesus was that both is off-putting and and tough for us, but also really compelling, right? When he's healing sick people, when he's talking to to sinners and people that are outcasts, he still is really compelling. And the other side of it is, if we find people compelling, if we're willing to like go and invest in them and befriend them and, and show them that we actually love them, well, reciprocally, they care about what we care about, right? And they care about us. And so when we get a chance to say, hey, this is who Jesus is for me. This is what he's done in my life. This is who he actually is. And man, I'm so thankful for him. If we care about them and they care about us, they, they say, oh, that's really interesting. So I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is when Jesus sends people out, like what he sends them to do is not to not to like condemn them. He de- definitely calls them to repent. So send, we'll go out there and explain the gospel that Jesus is the king and that he's there to, to, to uh, invite us into the good news, that he invites us into new life. That includes repenting of our sin and letting go of our self-destructive patterns and the ways that we hurt each other. Let's repent of all that. But he also is calling them to go set people free and anoint them with oil, the sick people, and heal them like that, that whole thing is like there's a side of a medicinal side to anointing with oil in the ancient world. Um, there's also a side of where anointing somebody is a symbol of God's presence and his favor. So all this, we're sent out to help people, to be um, a blessing to them, right? To, to work amongst their lives, to find ways that people are bound up in the power of darkness and to work against that. Um, one, one really quick thing I'll say before I, before I close this off is Um, When I think of what does it look like for us to be going around casting out demons today, I think some of it is literally that. And, and, And God has even recently invited me into doing some of those kinds of things a little more directly. But even di- indirectly, even on, a, even on a different scale, um, I think of an organization like AIM. I don't know if you guys know Agape International Missions, but they're um, founded in Rockland here, but they go into Cambodia, and we're going to actually send a trip in the next year um, of people going to AIM. But what they do is they fight against human trafficking. So there's these little girls in Cambodia that are literally either stolen from their parents or they're sold by their parents. And they go, and they're in sex slavery for their, for their like, young lives. And this whole thing is so awful, right? And a lot of times it's Westerners that are traveling there and using these girls like commodities, that whole thing is, on the one hand, it's just natural evil. It's just people being awful. But on the other hand, it's like, you got to believe there's a lot that's demonic there. And so what AIM does is they go and they, they care for these girls when they're rescued. They started a SWAT team where they pull girls out. So what, what I'm trying to say is, these are ordinary things ordinary. These are things that people do, right? They're not, they're not sitting there like casting out demons like some kind of faith healer. What they're doing is they're saying, there's these systems of darkness, and there's something I can do to help set these people free. And they go, and it's, it's extreme to like be pulling these girls out of slavery, but then they're caring for them. They're loving them. They'll, they'll share all day long that what the real power to set these girls free from all this oppression they've experienced is, it's the power of a loving family. Just being there to love them, to invite them out. And so, this is kind of an extreme thing, but what I'm trying to say is the way that evil works, the way that darkness works in our world is it's oppressive. It, it binds people up, and there's so much that we can do as Christians to say, "Okay, Jesus, I believe that you could you could stop." Sex trafficking in Cambodia, but also what I love about what AIM does is saying, okay, but also I believe you could use us to do that, and they take the step of faith. And so maybe it's a big picture thing like that, like we need uh, Christians to go to the mission field, we need uh, to go out everywhere that Jesus needs to be told and proclaim His healing and His power. But also on a smaller scale, right? When we find people that are in like the, just the in bondage to depression. Um, in bondage to like abusive relationships, in bondage to um, their own sin that's just like this spiraling thing, in bondage to alcohol and drugs, like those kinds of things. I think so much of fighting against the forces of evil and in casting out all this stuff is us just saying, Hey, I'm here to be a light. I'm here to be a presence. I'm here to love you through this. I'm here to give you next steps. I'm here to give you support. I'm here because I'm finding life in Jesus together with these people. And we want to invite you to find that life as well. Like, it, I think it's as profound and as simple as all of that. So stepping back and just coming down to it, I think the real invitation here is you get a choice. You get to be the person that looks at Jesus and you're offended by him and you're like, I don't know, how could that possibly be? On the other hand, we can be like these 12 where Jesus just says, hey, join together and go out and I'm going to show you how I have the power to heal and restore lives through you. I think that is the invitation of these two things. That's what I see is so compelling is seeing the two set next to each other is there's work that God wants to do in this world. And man, he invites us to do that with us. I don't know why. I feel like it'd be a lot more efficient if he just did it himself. But he chooses to use us to do it. And there's so many ways that we can shed light and love into the world around us, invite people to experience um, the life of Jesus. And um, man, we're gonna keep seeing that play out in the Gospel of Mark um, in the new year. Actually, I'll just let you guys know right now. We're going to jump into an Advent series starting next week, and uh, we're going to be talking about the, the birth of Christ, and we're going to share some stories from our congregation that are people are going to just talk about um, how God's been working. It's going to be a really beautiful time over the next few weeks, but starting in the new year, we're jumping back in, and we're going to keep seeing Jesus do amazing things, and we're going to be invited to be part of it. I think it's amazing. So band's going to come up. We're going to sing. I'm going to pray for us as we close off this time. Lord, I'm so thankful um, for these stories. Um, Lord, it's hard to see people rejecting you. Um, and yet, Lord, I know that's, that's just what life is. Um, and I love how tender you are, how gentle you are. Um, I love that you just keep being who you are and you keep coming after us. You keep pursuing us. You keep inviting us in. Thank you even, Lord, that you send us out. And I feel so inadequate so much of the time. And yet, Lord, I see the ways that you're working. And I believe that you can work through each of us here. So Lord, I pray for us, whatever roadblocks are in our hearts, things that keep us far from you, I pray that you remove those. I pray that you would invite us to see you as you truly are. Lord, this work that you want to do in the world around us is so beautiful. May we believe that it can happen. And would you just do amazing things as we keep our eyes open. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.